Welcome to Hear Women Tell. I'm Chris Hillenberg, your host. This is where we interview professional storytellers to get the story behind the story. Uh, Charlotte Blake Alston is a storyteller, narrator, instrumentalist, and a singer who performs in venues throughout North America and abroad. She sings. She brings her stories and songs to national and regional festivals, schools, universities, museums, libraries, and performing arts centers throughout the United States and Canada, as well as local and national radio and television. In addition to her solo performances, Charlotte performs with her brother, world-renowned jazz violinist John Blake Jr., who, by the way, I had the opportunity to hear uh, several years ago, and his well, band in Telling on the Downbeat, a program of storytelling and jazz, in Fiddling with Stories, Charlotte and John perform as a duo featuring violin and chora in a program that celebrates the role of string instruments in African and African-American culture. She has narrated documentaries and has produced several commissioned works. This year, she hosted two of Carnegie Hall's community sing-ins. Uh, she has won the National Storytelling Network Circle of Excellent Awards in 2009. She won the National Association of Black Storytellers Zora Neale Hurston Award, which, by the way, is the highest honor bestowed by that organization. In 2007, she won the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania Woman of Achievement Recognition, which is uh, what they celebrate uh, Women's History Month with. Um, that's, that's just to name a few, Charlotte. You have been very busy. Yes, that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so um, there is, um, you know, some basic questions I always ask, it, and uh, one of them is uh, this: What drew you to storytelling? Oh, gee, I, I guess th there are a couple answers to that, and and one is um, that when I reflect back, the seeds were planted for what I'm doing now when I was very very young. My uh, mother was a church organist. She was our, the, the organist for our church. She conducted uh, two choirs. Um, she was an accompanist to soloists. She brought the piano teacher to our house, <laughs> so everybody <laughs> had to learn to take piano lessons. Right, right. We did family programs. Um, and my father, on the other hand, could not carry tune from the living room to the dining room, so we used to ask him to please lip sync when we were doing family programs. But my dad had a passion for language and literature and poetry, and when he was able to escape um, the noise, the din, uh, the madness of five children, after working all day long, he would disappear in my parents' room. And I would go in there. Yes, the door was closed. Mm -hmm. But um, I was a bit of a daddy's girl, so I used to follow him around. So if I didn't see him, I'd go looking for him. And I just sat on the floor in the room just to be around him. And he was propped up on pillows, his thighs were his desk. He was reading and writing. And then over time, he began reading out loud to me what he was reading or writing. And then when I was about six, gave me uh, the complete poems of Paul Lawrence Dunbar, Mm. Excuse me, and selected a specific poem for me to read and learn. And I think when he saw how quickly I memorized it, a little light bulb went on, and and he began to write little comedic monologues for me to do and and give me other poems to learn. And and I used to recite. We did what I call the church banquet in tea circuit. <laughs> uh, so. Um, that's kind of where the seeds are planted, and he was kind of my my oral coach. Right. Um, it was really much, much later, you know, and I did poetry readings in college and all that, but it was really much later that um, storytelling kind of found me, I think, um, and it was while I was teaching. I taught grade school for a number of years, and storytelling was one of many things, a myriad number of things that you hope teachers are doing in their classrooms to engage children, to bring history and literature alive. And I really didn't think of it as any particularly big deal until um, uh, my kids uh, had kindergarten that year, just weren't quite prepared for an assembly program we had signed them for. And I dramatized the folktale they were preparing to do as a skit so they could hear the characters, hear the, hear the, the text and envision their characters, <clears throat> excuse me, and it was the audience reaction surprised me, including my kids, who I thought were always immersed in story, and for days, kids and colleagues came up to me and made comments, and I wondered what this magic was, and uh, we had a story tell also that you, that you heard come to the school, and, and that's when I discovered there was a storytelling guild, I, they were sponsoring a program, um, and I went to hear, it was Robin Moore that night, hmm. uh, who just 
you know, doesn't move very much and sat on a stool. And just with his voice, really, just transported us out of the space we were in into the Western Plains. Mm-hmm. And I immediately understood its power and began to see it <clears throat> as a tool, as a window, as a bridge, as something that I could use. I was in an independent school with a faculty of 70, but only three of us were, were persons of color. And I just thought of it immediately as a way that initially children could uh, affirm, access, acknowledge, appreciate a cultural perspective that was different from their own because I then began to take a look at my own traditions, um, oral, oral uh, telling traditions. And that's kind of where it started. And, and the head of my lower school um, started telling other heads that she had a teacher who did storytelling. She actually gave me release time once or twice a month to run oh, out. And that was great. That was great. And run back. Yeah, at one point she said, I think I'm responsible for you leaving. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> So there was some you know, word of mouth in the community. Um, I did join the local guild here. Um, and also during that period of time, this conference called the Association of Black Storytellers Conference came through Philadelphia. And I thought, oh, okay, that sounds interesting. And I went and discovered that there really were people who were uh, working to perpetuate the oral tradition. There were people who were working to keep alive, actively keeping alive um, oral telling traditions. And that's when I discovered there was a national community. And, you know, that was. So I had this one year where there was just this increasingly intense internal restlessness, I think, to kind of explore another aspect of who I was. And, and I made the decision to just step away from the classroom. And I was going to try it for two years to see if I could, you know, earn enough money to pay my mortgage. Mm-hmm. And um, that was 21 years ago. Wow, that's great. That's great. Now so, I know that uh, I know you also uh, play instruments when you tell. Uh, what are the instruments that you play? Yeah, not not most of the time. I mean, that's not the bulk of the, the performance, but but certainly um, music and spoken word and instrument, you know, playing of instruments was all incorporated into um, uh, oral telling. So there was drumming, there were you know balafones playing, there were some pianos, there were uh, choras in the West African tradition. Mm. Um, and I grew up around music, so um, even though I'm the only one of my siblings that didn't pursue it as a course of study, um, it still is an integral part of who I am. Uh, so sometimes it'll be um, uh, some piano, um, sometimes it'll be kora, which is the 21-stringed West African instrument that is played as the history is recounted. Um, it might be a small drum. My my knees in the airline make it difficult for me to carry the large one. Mm, right. Uh, right. <laughs> uh, so uh, if I can get someone to have one for me and I want them at the other end, uh, I'll use the drum as well. So um, it's just, you know, it, th- th- there are some stories also that, that, that uh, have either rhythmic or melodic refrains in them. Right. So that the music is incorporated into the story that has been passed down. Um you know, through the generations, so it's kind of a mix of things. Okay, you you now there's a, and I'd never had seen this term before, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but is it geo? Uh, grio. Grio. And yeah, as, as it's like kind of like a French pronunciation. There's there's um, yeah, a couple different um, ideas about how that term emerged. And one is that it <clears throat> perhaps comes from actually an indigenous African language, an old word, uh, or the other is that it was a word used by the French during the colonization of certain West African countries. And it was when they saw the the Jalis, uh, the, they didn't have another term for it. So there's, there's a little bit of disagreement about how that term emerged, but it has come to be the a uh, word that is that 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 is ascribed to those individuals that for hundreds of years have been or their families have been responsible for learning, remembering, and recounting the history of their people. So those stories, those those people who do that are born into certain families. And I remember my core teacher said, for his sons, uh, they can be doctor, lawyer, but they're gonna learn Korah. 
so they're born into that tradition. So the indigenous word, the the Mandinka word, is Jali, which is you know, it's it's an it's an oral language, but it's been so it has been represented in print as J A L I or D J A L I or sometimes D J or J E L I. Um, but the Jali is um, the the keeper of the history. Right. It's Jali Muso. Muso in Mandinka is woman. And that's and that's because so much before things were written down there, there really were people right, absolutely. who kept these I mean, histories and stories. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and cultures all around the world. Before there was the written word, there was the spoken word. Right, right. And um, you know, I know that. Uh, how do you how do you see yourself as a griot? Do you see yourself in that role? Um, to a certain extent, I mean, I certainly um, was not born into that tradition, and I certainly don't recount in the way in which the, the Jalis or the Griots do, but I do believe I am a, a keeper of uh, and have a responsibility to continue to be a keeper of uh, African, African-American culture and history as it manifests itself here in the, in, in the States, in the West, in the diaspora. Right. So um, in that regard, it's, uh, you know, we, we have to take responsibility for um, keeping alive, maintaining, and passing down our own traditions. Absolutely. Well, we're going to take a little break right now, uh, and then we'll be right back with Charlotte Blake Alston. This is Chris Hillenberg. I'm your host for Hear Women Tell, where we learn the story behind the story. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Hear Women Tell. This is Chris Hillenberg. I'm your host where we interview professional storytellers to get the story behind the story. And today we're talking to Charlotte Blake Alston. Uh, Charlotte, you know, you were talking about Lawrence, Paul Lawrence Dunbar. And uh, one of my favorite poets when I was a child was the Hoosier poet, James Whipcomb Riley. And I believe that he, he had some connection to Paul Lawrence Dunbar. But he always uh, wrote his poems in dialect. And uh, I'm, you know, I know that you do a lot of your work in dialect, your stories in dialect. How does telling a story in dialect make it more than it otherwise would be? Well, I, I, it just well, well. First of all, when I, I even as a child, when I came across Dunbar's work, um, I felt like it. I heard it in my head as a child. Mm-hmm. So it, 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 I, I believed even then that it needed to be spoken. And particularly when it comes, and I think it, it was, now, now Dunbar didn't write all of his work in dialect format, but that's what he came, became most well-known for. And it was the dialect in particular when James Wickham Riley read it that really attracted him to Dunbar's work. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, it, the, if I can just uh, try not to be too academic here, but <laughs> when, when people were taken out of the hulls of slave ships, chained together, they, there was no one who led them into a classroom and said, now we're going to discuss English syntax and grammar and structure. Right, right. And they didn't learn or hear the language spoken by people who spoke the highest form necessarily of, of English. Right, right. Um, they came with their own languages. And while we tend to generally accept or acknowledge that there are really are other, there really are other languages in the world that have their own articulation patterns, their own syntax structure. Um, for example, if you're French, you say the chair black, not the black chair. Right, right. Um, but no one ascribes uh, ignorance to that. They don't say because you don't say it the way we say it in English, it means that you're uncivilized or you're stupid. Mm. If you hear someone from uh, French speaking English, they will still speak it with a French accent. doesn't mean there's something defective about them. Right. So, so we internalize, our brain is, is, is made to internalize any articulation pattern when we're born. And that ability to discern uh, sounds, etc., diminishes as we get older. But once we've internalized our own articulation pattern, melodic rhythm, whatever, we tend to apply that when we learn another language. Mm-hmm. So if you come from an Asian Akashi, it's a no hour over L in the language system. So they have a difficulty with that when you speak English. 
Right. Um, but we're also off sometimes pretty awful speakers of other languages. Oh, I'm sure we um, are. So, so, but when people, when African people <clears throat> came and heard the language, they repeated what they heard and applied their legitimate articulation patterns to what they heard. You know, but it was, you know, people just use the word ignorant when, when you know, oh, they just don't know how to speak English kind of thing. So, so you have to know something about the, 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 the reality of the history. Right, and right. And the early relationship between the, you know, African people who came here and plantation owners, it was a pathological one. So what evolved was a style of speaking um, that you then had to make choices about uh, conveying when you wrote it down. Um, and if when I look at Joe Chandler Harris's represent, written representation of the way people spoke, for me it's a it's a bit exaggerated. When I hear Dunbar's, when I and I say that uh, consciously when I hear right, it, right, when I right. hear Dunbar's, I hear the melody and the rhythm and the articulation patterns of my great aunts and uncles, mm. and those were people who surrounded me with love. So what I think Dunbar, what I know Dunbar did was to uh, convey people during the time of slavery and post-slavery in their language with dignity. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's another thing that draws me in particular to Dunbar's work, and it really does have to be spoken off the page. Right, right. Uh, the um, origins of stories uh, are important, I think, for audiences to know about so that, that when you tell the story, they have an idea about where these come from. Uh, do you do something like that when you tell your stories? Um, do, I, do I give the context of the story? Yes. Is that what you're asking? Yeah, right. yeah, for, yeah, most of the time I do. I'll say, and I'll, you know, it comes from this particular ethnic group or it comes from this particular region of the country or of the continent. Um, so, yeah, uh, or, or if there are, there's a couple I do with kids where I say, well, okay, when you hear, there are two songs in this story, and when you hear the songs, you're not going to know what I'm saying because they're not going to be sung in English. They're going to be sung in a language called Owalaf. Uh And I have them say the language. And I say where that language is spoken. Um, and then I say, but I will tell you what the words mean. Right. And then I proceed with the story. Um, and I tell the context of that particular one. It was given as a gift when I visited the country of you know, Senegal. So we'll say that country. Right. Or this comes from the, um, comes from Lesotho, the Basotho people. So, so you, yes, I do give it its put it in its cultural context. Right. So you have, you have quite a few different stories you tell from all sorts of different cultures, right? Well, yeah, most of them actually um come out of Western African traditions and I'm actually looking more adding more to my repertoire, uh, more stories that come from other regions of the continent. Mm. Well, how do you adapt stories from other countries? Um, it takes a little bit of work and thought um, <laughs> because so many have been translated not just out of their indigenous language but out of their cultural contexts. And there are often meanings or things in there that just don't quite translate. There are words and phrases and idiomatic expressions that don't translate, or if they do, they, they don't make sense in our uh, cultural experience. So you have to find ways to... Um, Relanguage them, perhaps uh, adapt them in such a way that you don't take out the essence of the heart of the story. Right. Um, but in a way that you can then present that story so it is palatable and and ha has some some meaning and and uh, for a list an American listening audience. So when you started storytelling and and the uh, and you were being exposed to all the different. Uh, or organizations and things like that. I mean, were there people who are there people in storytelling that you consider your mentors? Um, well, when when I really kind of thought, you know, I I think this is something I really want to do in Philadelphia, where I'm from at that time. Linda Goss was the the name that people knew. Um, uh, Ed Stibender was another one mm -hmm. who um, uh, was is here in Philadelphia. In the Phil he was living in Philadelphia. He lives actually, I'm, we're just outside the city and I'm about a five-minute drive from Ed's house. Uh, but those were the people who were prominent 
locally. And, and it, was, it took me a while to find out that they were prominent nationally right. as well. And then Linda is a co-founder of what was then the Association of Black Storytellers, which became the National Association of Black Storytellers, which became NABS. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it was kind of, you know, looking at going and seeing her perform. She was also a classroom teacher at that time uh, at another independent school here in Philadelphia. Um, and then just some of the members of um, the local guilds of, of Patchwork, the storytelling guild here, um, and which consisted of storytellers, librarians, teachers. Robin Moore was, was a member of that group. So I, I started really um, interacting with storytellers, talking about the craft, talking about the art, um, uh, going to workshops. So the first, and, and I, I don't, you know, I never saw a letter or anything, but the, you have to be recommended to the National Storytelling Festival. Right, right. And I, my first appearance there was in 1994. I mean, I'd only left teaching in 1990. Um, and I, it, it re- I believe it was Ed Stivender uh, who put my name in the pot. Um, I also, because I used to do some narration when I was a young woman with choirs and that sort of thing, I uh, did a narration at the Smithsonian Institution, and I, and I, I was still teaching then, actually. Um, but it was uh, a stage production of the radio play about Richard Allen and the history of the AME Church. Mm. So the curator, it was at the Museum of American History, and Howard Bass was there, and I think it was when Howard saw me there, he invited me to come and participate in what was called Word of Mouth, a storytelling symposium for teachers. And they, um, there was something, they record everything, and there was something wrong with the recording equipment that year for some reason, but they gave us copies of the previous year. And that's when I heard Donald Davis. Oh, yeah. And Rex Ellis. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first person I met, my first experience at Jonesboro was Donald Davis. Mm. Uh, and Donald has always been exceedingly encouraging back in the early years. Milby Birch was another one who right. I was like really nervous and shaking in my boots and thought, what the heck am I doing here with all these people who really know what they're doing? <laughs> and <laughs> Milbury kind of sort of put a bug in my ear. We were at a festival and I was sort of, you know, qualifying my presence there and then she said you're here because you're supposed to be just tell oh that's great <laughs> that is awesome <laughs> oh that's great so it's a supportive community it is uh, it really is and um you know i, I remember this hearing uh antonio rocha who who uh, i don't know if you're familiar with him but he's a mime mm. very tall and lean he's from um brazil but he he became an american citizen a few years ago and he said, "This is he said this is amazing because there seems to be no jealousy. So uh, you know, in the storytelling community, and it's because everyone comes, everyone is so different and unique, and everyone has their own voice. Right. Own right. Oh, it's just, it's, the, it's the most uh, wonderful, friendliest, warm oh. community you could possibly imagine. Yeah, and my first experience with Jonesboro was as a feature teller, which is a little crazy in itself. But I remember just thinking, and this is really beyond a storytelling festival. This is a celebration of life. Right. Uh, and many of us, when we go to the National Association of Black Storytellers Conference and Festival, it's like you know we get charged up. It's like you get your food. For the year, you know, um, and it just you, it, you just come away inspired. Right. Well, we're going to take another break right now, but we'll be right back with Charlotte Blake Alston. This is Chris Hillenberg with Hear Women Tell, where we interview profo- professional storytellers to get the story behind the story. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Hero Mentel. This is Chris Hillenberg, your host. Today we're interviewing professional storyteller Charlotte Blake Alston. You know, Charlotte, before we, in the last segment, it reminded me of a quote from Donald Davis. Uh, He says, storytelling is not what I do for a living. It's how I do all that I do while I'm living. (laughs) Which I think is true. You know, I think that um, it's a wonderful uh, art form, but it does so much for the teller, too. Absolutely. And my core teacher, Jimo Kuyate, late Jimo Kuyate, would always say this is not 
something. You're not storyteller when you stand on stage and tell a story. It's every time you open your mouth. Right, right. I just want to let people know, I've been to your website. It's a great website. Love the look and feel of it and everything. And if they want to know more about your programs and your uh, cassettes and CDs, they can certainly go there. You can there. go there now. It actually is my old site, which is holding a place until the new one, which is being oh, okay. created, All right. uh, goes up. Yeah, the pictures actually, people love that website. It's full of energy and color. Oh, it is. Pictures are about 18 to 20 years oh, old. time to update. <laughs> <laughs> so that website is uh, www.charlotteblakeaustin.com. Yeah, A-L-S-T-O-N. Okay. So Charlotte Blake Austin as one word. Yes, that's so, yeah. great. And there's a whole aspect of um, you know my life, my storyteller life that's that's missing from there. So that will be included in oh, great. in the new one. And that's that's the narrations and commissions that I've done for orchestras. And great, great. Yeah, you have some stories you're going to share with us today, right? I actually, since we have been talking about Paul Lawrence Dunbar, I thought I would share a couple of uh, Dunbar pieces. Oh, please go right ahead. And uh, the first is When Melinda Sings. Go ahead and quit that noise, Miss Lucy. Put that music book away. What's the use to keep on trying? If you practice till you gray, you can't start no notes of flying like the ones that rants and rings from the kitchen to the big woods. When Melinda sings, you ain't got the natural organs for to make the sound come right. You ain't got the turns and twists for to make it sweet and light. Now, I tell you one thing now, Miss Lucy, and I'm telling you for true. When it comes to real right singing, tain't no easy thing to do. Easy enough for folks to holler, looking at the lines and dots, when ain't no one consented and the tune comes in in spots. But for real melodious music... That just strikes your heart and clings. <laughs> just you stand and listen with me when Melinda sings. Ain't you never heard Melinda? Bless his soul, take up the cross. Look here, ain't you joking, honey? Well, you don't know what you lost. You ought to hear that gal of wobbling robins, logs, and all them things. Hesh they mouths and hides they faces when Melinda sings. Fiddling man, just stop his fiddling. Lay his fiddle on the shelf. Mothenbird, quit trying to whistle because it just so shamed itself. Folks are playing on the banjo, drops their fingers on the strings. Bless your soul, forgets to move them when Melinda sings. She just spreads her mouth and hollers, Come to Jesus, till you hear sinners trembling steps and voices, timid like and drawing near. Then she tunes to Rock of ages, simply to the cross she clings, and you find your tears are dropping when Melinda sings. Hmm. Who that says that humble praise is with the master never counts? Has your mouth, I hear that music, as it rises up and mounts, floating by the hills and valleys way above this burying sod, as it makes its way in glory to the very gates of God. Oh, it's sweeter than the music of an educated band. And it's dearer than the battle song of triumph in the land. It seems holier than evening when the solemn church bell rings as I sit and calmly listen while Melinda sings. Towser, stop that barking. Yeah, man, to make that child keep still. Don't you hear the echoes calling from the valley to the hill? Let me listen. I can hear it through the brush of angels' wings. Soft. And sweet, swing low, sweet child, as Melinda sings. Oh, that's wonderful. Isn't that beautiful? Oh, I love that. And just the melody of it, the, just the melody and the rhythm of the language, the way he has crafted the language. Oh, it's great. So uh, uh, the other one I'd like to offer of his also is um, uh, when they listed colored soldiers and for so long, uh, you know, people either don't know or sometimes actually deny that uh, there's there's been an African American presence in every single war. Absolutely, yeah. Soil. Uh, so this is a woman reflecting uh, on a time when her lover comes to tell her that he has enlisted. 
they was talking in the cabin, it's talking in the hall. But I listen kind of careless, not thinking about it all. And on Sunday, too, I noticed there's whispering mighty much standing all around the roadside when they let us out of church. But I didn't think about it till the middle of the week. And my lies come to see me. And somehow, he couldn't speak. And I see it all in a minute what he come to see me for. They had listed colored soldiers. And my lies was going to war. Oh, I hugged him and I kissed him and I begged him not to go, but he told me that his conscience, it was calling to him so. And he couldn't bear to linger when he had the chance to fight for the freedom they had given him and the glory of the right. So he kissed me and he left me when I promised I'd be true. And they put a knapsack on him and a coat all colored blue. So I get him Pap's old Bible from the bottom of the drawer when he listed colored soldiers and my lies went to war. But I thought of all the weary miles that he would have to tramp and I couldn't be contented when they took him to the camp while my heart not broke with grief until I seen him on the street. And then I felt like I could go and throw my body at his feet. His buttons was a shining, and his face was shining too. And he looked so strong and mighty in his coat of soldier blue that I hollered, "Step up, man!" Though my throat was sore and raw when they listed colored soldiers, and my lies went to war. Old Miss cried when Master left her. Young Miss moaned her brother Ned and. I didn't know their feelings is the very words they said when I told them I was sorry they had done get up there all. But they only seemed more proud of it. They men had yet to call. Both my masters went in gray suits, and I loved the Yankee blue. But I thought that I could sorrow for the losing of them too, but I couldn't, for I didn't know the half of what I saw till they listed colored soldiers, and my liars went to war. Master Jack come home all sickly. He was broke for life, they said. And they left my poor young master somewhere on the roadside, dead. When the women cried and moaned him, I could feel it through and through, for I had a loved one fighting in the way of danger, too. Then they told me they had laid him somewhere way down south to rest with the flag that he had fit for shining there across his breast. Well, I cried, but then I reckoned that's what God had called him for when they listed colored soldiers, and my liars went to war. Wow. Ah, Dunbar. Oh, he's great. I have got to read that. I, I think he's a genius. I really believe he was a genius. And he was a very young man. You know, he was only 33 hmm. when he died. Well, you know, it's funny, uh, James Whipcomb Riley, of course, I grew up in southern Indiana, and I was in sixth grade, and the teacher, when it would rain, she, at recess, she would read James Whipcomb Riley. Oh, wow. And it was just, you know, the the boy and the bear and the, the little, you know, just everything. And as, as soon as I could get enough money up, I bought, the, the, you know, the works of James Whipcomb Riley, which I still have in my bookcase. Wow. Did he do, he did, did he do seeing things? Yeah, and he did. I ain't little, afraid of snakes and bugs and toads and worms and mice. And, yeah. mm-hmm. okay. Little Orphan little Annie came to our house to play. Right, right. Yeah, I read that. And the goblin gets you if you don't watch out. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, my father exposed uh, exposed us to all of that. Oh, it's just great. You know, it's been great having you on the program today. Well, thanks so much for asking me. So I hope at some point down the line that, uh, you know, we'll have an opportunity Many of the women who you've already spoken with who shared with your audience to come back and share some more Oh, stories. absolutely. Now, I also understand that you won your first 5K this spring. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I. you know, I'm a baby boomer. I'm trying to represent. Um, and, uh, <laughs> I had crept up to uh, 173 boomer pounds and oh. um, hired a physical trainer in December. Um, and one of my assignments was to walk three times a week for 30 minutes at a brisk pace. 
So she asked how I was doing. I said, well, I'm walking 20, and I, I, I jog 10. She said, oh, you're jogging. I said, well, if you walk fast, you can pass me. So um, she said, well, you might want to think about set a goal for 5K. It might motivate me. I said, no, too old, bad knees, not interested. That's not what I came in for. But she said, you just add two and a half minutes a week to your workout. So I thought, well, that's doable. So well, I started sure. throwing my little stuff in my suitcase and using the hotel fitness rooms, et cetera. And by April, I could run for 45 minutes. Wow. So um, the previous year, I had done my Burroughs 5K. I had done no training whatsoever, hadn't even walked. And this woman looked to be in her 70s past me like a block and a half from the finish line. So I'm like, I got my eye on her. But um, I, I ran the Coleman for the Cure on Mother's Day. My goal was to finish in 45 minutes. I finished in 41.19. Great. And then I ran my burrows on Memorial Day, and I medaled. I oh. came in third in the 60 to 69-year-old. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> so that was my accomplishment for the year. Oh, that's great. I know what with traveling and everything so much, it's really hard because you're it eating is, out. Oh, jeez. Oh, hotel food, restaurants. Oh. The people who really just want to take care of you and feel the need to feed you all day long. So, right. yeah, it's a bit of a challenge being on the road. Well, thanks so much again, Charlotte. This has been great. And, well, thank uh, you know, you I really appreciate you taking the time out. Sure, sure. Anytime. Okay. Can you tell the our uh, listeners how they can get in touch with you? Yeah, once again, it's uh, uh, my email is griotwoman, G-R-I-O-T, like a French pronunciation, woman, singular, W-O-M-A-N, griotwoman at AOL.com is my email. And my website, uh, www.charlotteblakeaustin.com. That's great. Well, thanks again. This is Chris Hillenberg uh, with Hear Women Tell, where we interview professional storytellers. To get the story behind the story, stay tuned because we have Linda Goodman next with the reviews and the news. Welcome back to Hero Mentel. This is Chris Hillenberg, your host. Today we're interviewing professional storyteller Charlotte Blake Alston. You know, Charlotte, before we, in the last segment, it reminded me of a quote from Donald Davis. Uh, he says, storytelling is not what I do for a living. It's how I do all that I do while I'm living. <laughs> Which I yeah, think is I true. I, you know, I think that um, it, it's a wonderful uh, art form, but it does so much for the teller, too. Absolutely. And my core teacher, Jimo Kuyate, late Jimo Kuyate, would always say this is not something, you're not storyteller when you stand on stage and tell a story. It's every time you open your mouth. Right, right. I just want to let people know, I've been to your website. It's a great website. Love the look and feel of it and everything. And if they want to know more about your programs and your uh, cassettes and CDs, they can certainly... Go you can there. go there now. It actually is my old site, which is holding a place until the new one, which is oh, being okay. created, All right. uh, goes up. Yeah, the pictures actually, people love that website. It's full of energy and color. Oh, it is. Pictures are about 18 to 20 oh, years old. time to update. <laughs> <laughs> so that website is uh, yeah, com. Yeah, A-L-S-T-O-N. Okay. So Charlotte Blake Austin as one word. Yes. So, yeah. And there's a whole aspect of um, you know my life, my storyteller life that's that's missing from there. So that will be included in oh, great. in the new one. And that's that's the narrations and commissions that I've done for orchestras. And great, great. Yeah, you have some stories you're going to share with us today, right? I actually, since we have been talking about Paul Lawrence Dunbar, I thought I would share a couple of uh, Dunbar pieces. Oh, please go right ahead. And uh, the first is When Melinda Sings. Go ahead and quit that noise, Miss Lucy. Put that music book away. What's the use to keep on trying? If you practice till you gray, you can't start no notes of flying like the ones that rants and rings from the kitchen to the big woods. When Melinda sings, you ain't got the natural organs for to make the sound come right. You ain't got the turns and twists for to make it sweet and light. Now, I tell you one thing now, Miss Lucy, and I'm telling you for true. When it comes to real right singing, tain't no easy thing to do. Easy enough for folks to holler, looking at the lines and dots, when ain't no one can sense it and the tune comes in in spots. But for real melodious music... That just strikes your heart and clings. <laughs> just you stand and listen with me when Melinda sings. 
ain't you never had Melinda? Bless his soul, take up the cross. Look here, ain't you joking, honey? Well, you don't know what you lost. You ought to hear that gal of wobbling robins, larks, and all them things. Hesh they mouths and hides they faces when Melinda sings. Fiddling the man just stop his fiddling. Lay his fiddle on the shelf. Mothenbird quit trying to whistle because it just so shamed itself. Folks are playing on the banjo, drops their fingers on the strings. Bless your soul, forgets to move them when Melinda sings. She just spreads her mouth and Hollins, come to Jesus, till you hear sinners trembling steps and voices, timid like and drawing near. Then she tunes to rock of ages, simply to the cross she clings, and you find your tears are dropping when Melinda sings. Hmm. Who that says that humble praise is with the master never counts? Hesh your mouth, I hear that music as it rises up and mounts, floating by the hills and valleys way above this burying sod, as it makes its way in glory to the very gates of God. Oh, it's sweeter than the music of an educated band, and it's dearer than the battle song of triumph in the land. It seems holier than evening when the solemn church bell rings as I sit and calmly listen while Melinda sings. Towser, stop that barking. Yeah, me, man, to make that child keep still. Don't you hear the echoes calling from the valley to the hill? Let me listen. I can hear it through the brush of angels' wings. Soft and sweet. Swing low, sweet child. That's Melinda. Oh, that's wonderful. Isn't that beautiful? Oh, I love that. And just the melody of it, the, just the melody and the rhythm of the language, the way he has crafted the language. Oh, that's great. So uh, the other one I'd like to offer of his also is um, uh, when they listed colored soldiers. And for so long, uh, you know, people either don't know or sometimes actually deny that uh, there's there's been an African American presence in every single war. Absolutely, yeah. Soil. Uh, so this is a woman reflecting uh, on a time when her lover comes to tell her that he has enlisted. They was talking in the cabin. It's talking in the hall. But I listen kind of careless, not thinking about it all. And on Sunday too, I noticed there's whispering mighty much standing all around the roadside when they let us out of church. But I didn't think about it till the middle of the week, and my lies come to see me, and somehow he couldn't speak. Then I see it all in a minute what he come to see me for. They had listed colored soldiers, and my lies was going to war. Oh, I hugged him and I kissed him and I begged him not to go, but he told me that his conscience, it was calling to him so. And he couldn't bear to linger when he had the chance to fight for the freedom they had given him and the glory of the right. So he kissed me and he left me when I promised I'd be true. And they put a knapsack on him and a coat all colored blue. So I get him Pap's old Bible from the bottom of the drawer when he listed colored soldiers, and my lies went to war. But I thought of all the weary miles that he would have to tramp, and I couldn't be contented when they took him to the camp, while my heart not broke with grief until I seen him on the street. And then I felt like I could go and throw my body at his feet. For his buttons was a-shining, and his face was shining, too. And he looked so strong and mighty in his coat of soldier blue that I hollered, step up, man, though my throat was sore and raw when he listed colored soldiers. And my liars went to war. Old Miss cried when Master left her. Young Miss moaned her brother Ned, and I didn't know their feelings is the very words they said when I told them I was sorry they had done get up there all. But they only seemed more proud of it. They men had yet to call. Both my masters went in gray suits, and I loved the Yankee blue. 
But I thought that I could sorrow for the losing of them too, but I couldn't. For I didn't know the half of what I saw till they listed colored soldiers. And my liars went to war. Master Jack come home all sickly. He was broke for life, they said. And they left my poor young master somewhere on the roadside, dead. When the women cried and moaned them, I could feel it through and through. For I had a loved one fighting in the way of danger too. Then they told me they had laid him somewhere way down south to rest with the flag that he had fit for shining there across his breast. Well, I cried. But then I reckoned that's what God had called him for when they listed colored soldiers and my liars went to war. Wow. Oh, he's great. I have got to read that. I, I think he's a genius. I really believe he was a genius. And he was a very young man. You know, he was only 33 hmm. when he died. Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, James Whipcomb Riley, of course, I grew up in southern Indiana, and I was in sixth grade. And the teacher, when it would rain, she at recess, she would read James Whipcomb Riley. Oh, wow. And it was just... You know, the the boy and the bear and the, the little, you know, just everything. And as, as soon as I could get enough money up, I bought, the, the you know, the works of James Whipcomb Riley, which I still have in my bookcase. Wow. Did he do, he did, did he do seeing things? Yeah, and he did. I ain't little, afraid of snakes and bugs and toads and worms and mice. And, yeah. mm-hmm. okay. Little Orphan little Annie came to our house to play. Right, right. Yeah, I read that. And the goblin gets you if you don't watch out. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, my father exposed uh, exposed us to all of that. Oh, it's just great. You know, it's been great having you on the program today. Well, thanks so much for asking me. So I hope at some point down the line that, uh, you know, we'll have an opportunity Many of the women who you've already spoken with and shared with your audience to come back and share some more Oh, stories. absolutely. Now, I also understand that you won your first 5K this spring. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I. you know, I'm a baby boomer. I'm trying to represent. Um, and, uh, <laughs> I had crept up to uh, 173 boomer pounds and oh. um, hired a physical trainer in December. Um, and one of my assignments was to walk three times a week for 30 minutes at a brisk pace. So she asked how I was doing. I said, well, I'm walking 20, and I, I, I jog 10. She said, oh, you're jogging. I said, well, if you walk fast, you can pass me. So um, she said, well, you might want to think about set a goal for 5K. It might motivate me. I said, no, too old, bad knees, not interested. That's not what I came in for. But she said, you just add two and a half minutes a week to your workout. So I thought, well, that's doable. So well, I started sure. throwing my little stuff in my suitcase and using the hotel fitness rooms, et cetera. And by April, I could run for 45 minutes. Wow. So um, the previous year, I had done my Burroughs 5K. I had done no training whatsoever, hadn't even walked. And this woman looked to be in her 70s past me like a block and a half from the finish line. So I'm like, I got my eye on her. But um, I, I ran the Coleman for the Cure on Mother's Day. My goal was to finish in 45 minutes. I finished in 41.19. Great. And then I ran my burrows on Memorial Day, and I medaled. I oh. came in third in the 60 to 69-year-old. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> so that was my accomplishment for the year. Oh, that's great. I know what with traveling and everything so much, it's really hard because you're it eating is, out. Oh, jeez. Oh, hotel food, restaurants. Oh. The people who really just want to take care of you and feel the need to feed you all day long. So, right. yeah, it's a bit of a challenge being right. on the road. Well, thanks so much again, Charlotte. This has been great. And, well, you know, you I really appreciate you taking the time out. Sure, sure. Anytime. Okay. Can you tell the our uh, listeners how they can get in touch with you? Yeah, once again, it's uh, uh, my email is griotwoman, G-R-I-O-T, like a French pronunciation, woman, singular, W-O-M-A-N, griotwoman at AOL.com is my email. And my website, uh, www, and my whole name, charlotteblakeaustin.com. That's great. Well, thanks again. This is Chris Hillenberg uh, with Hear Women Tell, where we interview professional storytellers to get the story behind the story. Stay tuned because we have Linda Goodman next with the reviews and the news. 
Welcome back to Hero Mentel. This is Chris Hillenberg, your host. Uh, we're talking with Linda Goodman for our news segment tonight. Linda, what kind of uh, storytelling news do you have for us? Well, in one of the previous shows, we talked about the upcoming celebration that takes place the weekend before Thanksgiving, and I have found out some a few sites. I thought I'd share a few with your listeners. Sure. Celebration, as we mentioned, is a worldwide storytelling event takes place annually on the weekend before Thanksgiving, and it creates a network of international storytelling enthusiasts bonded together in spirit at the same time. Members of the Long Island Storytelling Network will be performing folk tales and tunes on Friday, November the 19th at 7 p.m. Uh, it's going to be a free show at the Riverhead Public Library in Riverhead, New York, and if you'd like to learn more about that calibration, email hd hdh15 at optonline dot com. That's hdh15 at optonline dot net. I said dot com. I should have said dot net. Okay. Okay. Calibration uh, is also going to be held in Farmington, New Mexico, at the Farmington Public Library. At noon, and these are going to be youth tellers telling their favorite stories. If you're interested in more uh, information about this site, which is free also, you can uh, call 505-599-1261. That's 505-599-1261. And there also uh, is going to be one in North Carolina, um, a day, actually, I'm sorry, it's Tennessee, not North Carolina. Mm -hmm. uh, at the Bread Pub Cafe in Red Bowling Springs, Tennessee, uh, the show begins at 7 p.m. and there is no admission, but the Armor Hotel does serve supper as part of the evening's program, and the cost is $8 for that supper plus tax and gratuity. And if you're interested in uh, that particular celebration, you can call... 615-699-2180 for a dinner reservation to go along with the celebration, or you can email A-R-M-O-U-R-S-H-O-T-E-L at yahoo.com. That's armor, Armor's Hotel at yahoo.com. Oh, that sounds great. I just wanted... And that's only three of the locations. They're going to be in virtually every state. I would say so. I know that they had their website that there's a website www.telebration.org and that mostly tells you how to kind of organize one, right? Right. So right. I remember that I organized several back in the uh late 80s and early 90s and uh it's a very good package they send out. It gets you step-by-step -step directions what you can do if you would like to produce a, a celebration of your own. That would be cool. Well, thank you, Linda. I really appreciate it, and uh, I appreciate uh, all the things you do to provide us with the news and reviews. Thank you, Chris. All right, and this is Chris Hillenberg with Hero Women Tell, where we interview professional storytellers. Thanks for joining us today, and join us next week, Wednesday at 3 o'clock, on Hero Women Talk Radio.